For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Friends and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. Today, our guest is a New York Times bestselling author and comic book writer. She wrote the Blood series, multiple Star Wars novels, the Shadow series as pseudonym, pen name, Lila Bowen, and more. Welcome to the show, Delilah S. Dawson. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you. So glad to be here. So you've done all kinds of stuff with all of the successes in novels and whatnot so far. I'm kind of curious, was writing always a passion since like when you were younger and a kid? Or oh, did no, you grow was, into it? I was a visual artist. Um, so I was, I was a painter and I went to art school and um, I was a muralist and I thought that I was going to be a visual artist my whole life. Uh, and then writing kind of snuck up. Like I was good at writing. Like I won a contest in third grade for writing a poem about my family that was a complete lie. Uh, and then I wrote really sappy poetry and did like poetry slams in high school and wrote maudlin poetry in like college. But as far as writing a book, I honestly thought that that was like, you know, how like nuns and surgeons or like people that have known from the earliest days what they would be. I thought that that was what writers were. And that if you didn't have that calling that you couldn't possibly write a book, I thought that there was some like great secret to it. Yeah. So yeah, I, I didn't know I was a writer until I was 31. Oh, wow. But you enjoyed writing other stuff? Like poetry and whatnot? short stuff. I mean, like a poem I could do, but I remember like in 10th grade AP English, uh, the big final, the big last year end of the, the year was like a 10 page paper. And I was like, 10 pages, <laughs> write 10 pages on who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. So yeah, it used to be like very scary to me to thought of writing more than, you know, uh, a journal page of poetry. Yeah. Did you do, did you do well? Did you get good grades and stuff like that? Or was it just kind of like a, nope, I'm out. Oh no, I was I was a big nerd. I was the high school valedictorian. Oh wow, nice. Yeah. Nice. Well, nerddom goes multiple ways because you've obviously we'll talk about it. You've written some Star Wars stuff, you've written some comic book stuff, some other nerdy type stuff. Were you in, like into that type of stuff when you were a kid as well? Well, I had super normal parents. Okay. So like I didn't go to a comic book store until I was like 16. Okay. Um, I didn't know that they existed until then. I still remember like the guy I was dating, you know, he was like, what do you do for work? He's like, I work at an art center. What do you do? And he's like, I work at a comic book store. And I was like, you work at a what now? <laughs> a what? I had no idea. So, um, yeah, my parents were big into sports. I was forced to do sports for a long time. Oh. Uh, so I was into dirty things, but I didn't know. And I was a nerd because I really liked reading and books and horses and drawing. So everybody just called me a nerd. Yeah. I was before we really had a difference. Like now you can tell the difference between like a nerd, a geek, a dweeb and a dork. And back then it was just what bullies called me. Right. Exactly. Had yeah. the differentiation. But I mean, like I had the Star Wars sheets, like the ones, the, the blue sheets, you know, that everybody had in the eighties. Like I had those and I was sitting the night at my grandparents' house and my cousin threw up on them. And I was like, yeah, throw up on my Star Wars sheets. You know, I was like seven. So I was mad enough to get about that. I have, I still have, these are my Ewoks right here in the corner. I don't know if you can see them. That's Princess Nisa and a wicket that a fan gave me, but that's my original like 1983 Princess Nisa. Okay. So I was, I was in it to win it from the very start. It's just, you know, back then it wasn't as, Equa present, you didn't walk into, into, you know, Target and see 9,700 things. You had to go to the one aisle that had, you know, the guys and they'd already been picked over. So it was like seven stormtroopers and you're like, oh, more stormtroopers. Thanks. Right, right. Well, you need, you always need more. Well, you gotta have I, a whole army, right? Well, no, I was more, into, I have my, my little ponies here. So mm -hmm. I was more into color, like the Ewoks were my jam. I was, Ewoks were kind of my, uh, you know, everybody has that thing about Star Wars that they really fall in love with. And mine was Ewoks because I the first time I was allowed to stay up late at night was for uh, the, you know, Battle of Endor movie. 
And, you know, you watch that as a kid and you're like, oh my God, this little girl crash landed on a planet of like murder bears and she is their <laughs> queen. And this is what I need out of life. So, does, yeah, that, that was my does that include plan. fandom go to the, the Christmas special? You mean the holiday special? Yeah. yeah the holiday I mean, special. That was, that was kind of painful. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, we got Lumpawaru in there. We got some B. Arthur, but I mean, the Ewoks, you know, back then you couldn't just pull up the, oh no, I dropped my clip. Oh, no. um, you couldn't, <laughs> I just got a diagnosed ADHD, so come to grips with it. It's all right. Um, yeah, back then you couldn't just go, you couldn't even rent a movie. We didn't have VHS players yet. So it's like you had to either see the movie in the theater or you had to wait until a Sunday afternoon at three o'clock when it came on ABC with commercials. You couldn't just right. watch things on demand. So like that was, you know, the first Star Wars movie came out in May of 1977. I was born in October of 77. So I had to like see things on TV when they when they came out and then like just beg my dad not to change the channel. Nice. So we had talked a little bit briefly before we started and I wanted to bring up, I had seen your interview with Chris Paulini uh, for those that don't know, wrote the Aragon series. Um, and you had talked about how kind of your first book kind of came to be and working through anxiety and depression and lacks of lack of sleep. Would you be willing to retell us that story uh, for our oh. listeners? Because I think oh, yeah. it's really it's really important for everyone to hear a story like that. It's like I said, I thought that writers were very special people that were chosen by the gods and sent special muses and knew what they were supposed to do their whole lives. Um, and I didn't think that that was me. My husband, I met him in college and he was already writing books. And so I edited some for him and he's always like, you should write a book. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. And so then I tried and I sat down and I didn't get through the first paragraph because I couldn't decide what color the heroine's eyes should be. And I was like, well, if I get this wrong, the whole book is wrong from the start. It's just like, it's, it's tainted. So we can't do that. So I didn't get past the first page. The first time I tried to write a book and I put it away. Uh, and then I had a daughter and then I had a son. And when he was about nine months old, he stopped sleeping. So I had, you know, a two and a half year old and a brand new baby. I was getting like three hours of sleep a night. And I was just, I, I called it the sow days because I just felt like a pig lying on the ground. Like, come, come sup of my flesh. This is my <laughs> life. And uh, one night I, I was like, I was, you know, in bed with this crotchety baby trying to nurse him to sleep. And I went home, back downstairs to my husband. And I was like, um, don't take this the wrong way. But I think that there are rats talking in the walls. <laughs> and he was like, okay, first of all, let's get you on a sleep schedule. Because clearly, um, you know, I haven't been paying close enough attention to your time. Uh, but you're going to need more than three and a half hours of sleep a night. And he was like, but second of all, you really need a hobby. And I was like, well, my hobby is art. I'm an artist. And I can't art because art is poisonous. Paint is poison. Clay is, you know... I can't do any of these things. He's like, well, just write a book. Oh, you had like, you already have your laptop, you know, on a little TV tray in the baby room. So just write a book. And I, my brain was so broken that the part of me that would have been like, I can't, I don't know how the gods didn't tell me to, I don't have a muse. I tried and I failed. I was just like, yeah, whatever. Okay. Um, because my brain was broken and also kind of functionally changed, I guess. I've heard since then that having um, a son, like that their DNA crosses your blood brain barrier. Um, I've heard that, you know, being a mother changes your DNA. Basically, I am a very different person yeah. than I was before my son was born and before that sleeplessness and before giving birth in front of 14 people. Um, so yeah, I was like, yeah, sure. I'll write a book, whatever. Okay. And I was like, but you know, I don't have any ideas. How do you get ideas? And my husband was like, okay, well, I'll just email you um, an idea every day. And when one strikes you, that's what you write. And I was like, awesome. So the first day he goes to work and he emails me and it says, a woman wins a cruise and hijinks ensue. And I was like, well, I can't, I can't write that. I've never been on a cruise. How could I know what's on a cruise? I've never been on a cruise. I can't just write love boat. And he was like, well, make it work, like figure it out. That's what creativity is. Like we're yeah. doing Odyssey of the mind, you know, make it happen. So I was like, well, okay, I haven't been on a cruise. I've been on a ferry. I was on a ferry in Greece with my Greek boyfriend back in high school or uh, I guess it was college. So I was like, okay, well, what would happen on a Greek ferry other than me being violently ill? Um, and I was like, oh, well, you know, Zeus used to put on disguises to sleep with ladies. What if he slept with this poor woman who's on this ferry with her husband by pretending to be her husband? And then after that, she starts seeing all of the Greek myths like living around her. So like she's walking down the streets of Piraeus and there's a three-headed dog. And now Hera's mad at her. So that was my first book was just this, this poor woman who was a sleepless mom of a young child with a husband who had finally gone on a vacation uh, having these hijinks. And I actually managed to finish it. My husband was so awesome. He like took the kids for me and he, you know, he made, 
made possible for me to get to sleep and get the time to write. And so I kind of like just vomited this book out in like three months. And then I got online and I found out how to edit and how to query and how to find agents. And I started querying and I got 57 rejections. <laughs> and as, finally, this, as in the story, right? <clears throat> yeah. And finally, this really nice agent said, you know what? You've got some writing chops. Um, maybe don't start the book with a line about diarrhea. But uh, the main problem is that this book is chick lit slash romance. And those readers won't tolerate infidelity. And your whole book, the premise is infidelity. So it kind of, no one is ever going to be able to buy this or sell this. Oh, wow. See, I would have never thought about that. So that's, it's like. I didn't know. But that's right. that's why we say now, like, write, you have to read the genre you're writing in. I yeah. wasn't reading chick lit. So I didn't know that that was like a chick lit romance thing that they, they don't want infidelity. So it's like, oh, okay. So I just chunked the book and started a new one about rats that talked in the walls. <laughs> it was a middle grade adventure. It was kind of like the littles type of thing. Yeah. And then I uh, queried that one and I got 37 rejections and then I got an agent. How did you get through, you know, obviously we, we were talking about, you know, anxiety, depression, stuff like that. How did you get through every time you get a rejection? <clears throat> or did you go like, well, I'm just going to keep submitting it? Well, I recently learned that I have ADHD, as I said, and as it turns out, I'm really good at life hacking things. So when I'm like, okay, here's my problem. I don't think, oh, that's a problem for me. I'm a bad person. I think I can make that problem go away. <laughs> so um, I had a, an Excel spreadsheet when I was querying that had all of my agents, all of their information. I rated them a one, two, or three based on if they were like the dream, perfect fit, two, good, solid fit, three, I'm running out of people and God help me. <laughs> uh, and then as soon as I got a rejection back, I would sort it to no and send it off the page so I couldn't see it. So once I got a rejection, I never saw it again. Okay. So I'd sorted it down so low on the page. So yeah, it did get kind of like they started creeping up when I was running out of agents and I was getting to like just the threes. But in general, um, once I got the rejection, I was like, okay, never mind. And then I'd go send out a new query the second I got a rejection so that there were always three out in the world. Okay. That works. That works. Yeah. When um, you were doing that and you get a acceptance, what is, what is that like? Well, you know, the first one I got was actually a vanity press trying to take advantage of me. So that was super fun. Um, no, it wasn't fun at all. Oh, wow. Um, an old, like vague acquaintance from high school had mentioned on Facebook that her mom was an editor um, for a press. And so I sent her a copy of my book and uh, I should have known then because I had to go like, print a copy and give it to her, which is not how publishing worked even in 2009, 2010. Yeah. And I get an email that's like, congratulations, we have decided to publish your book. Please sign this and then we'll talk about the various plans. And I was like, oh my God, I finally got it. And then my husband was like, well, how much are they going to pay you? And I was like, well, it says to sign here and then they'll tell me. And he was like, okay, let's look at this a little more clearly. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank God for and him, huh? Oh, God bless him every moment of every day. Uh, it was a terrible predatory contract that was like, they own the rights to whatever I write next. They own the rights to everything forever. Like, it was trash. I mean, like, we looked up the company um, on Amazon and they had one book that was by the owner. Wow. So, yeah, it was so it was like I went from like 100 to zero. It was it was heartbreaking. I cried so hard. Yeah. Um, and that was with the first book that was, you know, fatally flawed, as I was told. Right. So the second book, after 37 rejections, um, I had two agents um, asked to have the call like in the same two or three days. Uh, and so that was, it was super exciting. But I'm also that kind of person that um, I'm eternally optimistic, but I don't go, it's going to happen. All my dreams are coming true. I'm like, eh, well, maybe, I don't know. Who knows what'll happen? So I, I try to kind of like hedge and not get too excited, but I did, I got very excited despite myself and like my friend was kind enough to watch my two babies while I had this call in my car on the playground parking lot. Wow. And I played my fight song, which at the time was battery by Metallica. So I'm in my car at the playground, like, <laughs> you know, getting ready to have this call and I got my little list of questions. Um, and then, you know, she offered, she offered uh, representation. They both did. And I ended up having to choose the agent that, um, one agent is like, I'm friends on Facebook with her now. She's awesome. We're on like, we'll hug if we see each other, but she only represented children's books at the time. Okay. And this was a children's book I was querying. And my next book I was writing is Wicked As They Come, which became my first published book, which is a steampunk vampire romance, which that children's agent could not handle. So I went with really? the agent. Who Why not? 
now she can. She has she has broadened her horizons to the fact that it was like, oh, well, if you went with me, you might have to work with someone else at my, you know, it was basically I'd have to query again for an adult book. And it was like, I don't think my little heart can take that. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. Well, you talked about the music. And it, 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 from what I understand, music kind of is a backdrop for a lot of the writing you do. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I always have a fight song that I listen to, like if I'm going to go my first day at a con, if I'm going to do a big interview or a big, um, you know, like one of those Star Wars panels that has like 5,000 people in it, I have to like be in my little hotel room, like getting game face on. Um, but I also have playlists for every book. Uh, much earlier when I wasn't working on quite so much as a time, every single book had a playlist that I would kind of use to story break and get in the mood for it. So if you go on Spotify and you look up Delilah S. Dawson, which is what I am everywhere on all the social media, you can see the playlist for books that I have um, by names. So you can see like what I was listening to when I wrote Wicked As They Come back in 2010 or whatever. Uh, there's even a The Violence playlist. It's called TV. That's awesome. All so of those. Um, I don't use them as much these days because I'm working on I'm working on three projects right now. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, I've learned how to focus in different ways, but definitely for the first, you know, big chunk of my career, that was how I had to get in the mood for a book because I had young children. And so it was like all day long, I'm caring for kids, driving them here, driving them there, doing food, doing all this. And then the second I got the chance to write, I didn't have three hours to tootle around playing Wordle to get back into the mood. I had to like get right to the writing because I only had a couple hours and a playlist would behaviorally condition me to be right in that world, right in that thing. Especially if you've been going at it and you get into the song, it's like you've already been in the mindset with that song because music, much like sense, bring back memories and feelings oh, yeah. and emotions. So that's a great way to, to, to put it in there. So that's really, do you have a favorite playlist? I'm not going to say what's your favorite book, but do you have a favorite playlist? Well, you know, by the time that I finished one of those books back then, they, they used to take me longer. Like the longer you are a writer, I think the kind of the faster the process goes and the fewer drafts I need. I mean, that Wicked As They Come probably had 14 drafts before my agent even saw it, you know, and these days my agent gets like the second draft. Okay. It's just so much faster because I have so much more experience. Um, so I probably listened to that playlist, you know, 7,000 times, whereas now the violence playlist I probably listened to four or five times. Um, so after I've used a playlist, it's almost like, you know how, um, after a Kmart goes away, it's this empty husk that no one wants to move into. <laughs> yeah. That's how that playlist feels where I'm like, oh, this desolate world has been so used up. Except so, like, for when Halloween of... rolls around, right? And we get, yeah, a, well, and we get, a, we get a Halloween oh, yeah, store. Okay. We get, a, we get a Halloween store. I haven't yet, but I, I use up those songs. So I don't use like precious, wonderful songs that mean the world to me. Okay. I kind of go through, I find one song that I like. And then I go through Spotify where it says, you know, if you like this song, you like these bands. And then okay. I just chuck stuff into the playlist. Okay. Um, so I, it's like, I know I'm going to do them dirty. I know I'm going to use them and leave them. So it's, it's not my, my precious beloved songs, except for, I guess I did write one song to disintegration or I wrote, uh, the, what's it called? Um, Three Lives of Lydia, which is in the Carney Punks mm -hmm. Anthropo... An I'm sorry. The Carney Punk Anthology that yeah. Kevin Hearn did, which is how Kevin Hearn and I met. But okay. I, I didn't use The Cure's Disintegration for that, uh, which was the last... I was like, okay, I can't use things I love this much because that got a little dark. Okay. You mentioned Kevin Hearn. Let's yeah. talk about you and Kevin Hearn. You met on that book. Um did you guys like kick off right away during that time or how did, how did that, how did you guys come together as far as like, as far as that book goes? And then of course you guys as friends. I was foisted upon Kevin against his will. <laughs> so when you, when you sell an, an anthology to one of the major publishing houses, you often say, okay, it's going to be me and my six friends. And the publishing house says, great. We get to select three of our writers and you're stuck with them. Um, because that's, you know, kind of their benefit they get is they get to put some of their writers in there and, and add to the mix and, you know, up their own brand. So that was right when I was writing Wicked As They Come, um, Carney Punk was a really good fit for me. And so they foisted me upon Kevin and then uh, Kevin kind of like looked into my stuff and we realized we had friends in common and he reached out and like now we're best friends. Nice. <laughs> he's the nicest person on earth. But yeah, yeah that's we met through that. He's yeah, he's pretty amazing. And everybody that says anything about him, it's always like the best stuff mm -hmm. ever. Yep. He is, he is he is the best person on earth. He's the, the human embodiment of like a really great dog. And I say that in the best way possible. 
Well, I mean, I think he with his with his Iron Druid series, you can he would take <laughs> that as a compliment. Yeah. Uh, so uh, people, I'm sure people want to know how you guys like got the Tales of Pell series off, but I'm sure that's been asked to death. Uh, when you guys were working on that and and passing your your stuff back and forth, um, did you use your your audio playlist in that, or was that a little bit of a different scenario because you're bouncing Ooh. stuff back and forth with him? Let me look and see real quick if I did any of those for that. Because oh, I'm really curious, and does he know? that you have a playlist for a lot of your stuff. Like, just, was know. he like, oh, was she listening to this when she wrote this part of that? Yeah, I do have those playlists. You can actually see them on Spotify right now. There was a lot of Passion Pit and Kill the Farm Boy and a lot of Mikey Snow and Vampire Weekend. Very happy little thing, lots of Foster for the People. Um, fascinating. Such an, I, haven't, like, I haven't thought about this in quite some time, um, but I didn't need it as much. Those books were so unique. Normally I only draft, first draft one book at a time. I think of first drafts like carrying laundry from the dryer to the bed. Like mm -hmm. you're carrying this hot laundry and you don't want to drop it or dirty it or ruin it. So you don't stop for the socks. You don't stop for anything. You just like run. Uh, so that's how I do most first drafts. And I don't do two first drafts at the same time because you can't carry two baskets of laundry at once. Right. But Kill the Farm Boy and the Pellbrooks were very different because Kevin and I would kind of story break at the start and then we would break it down to 30 chapters and trade them back and forth. So it was less like a book that I had to carry and more like a hot potato that I had to throw. And okay. when I wasn't holding the potato, I didn't have to think about it. Yeah. And um, I'm a really fast writer. So when I was holding the potato, like when he sent me something, I would get it to him the next day or two uh, pretty fast. So he would send me a chapter and I would edit it and tell him in the comments how amazing he was and how funny it was. And then I would write my chapter and then I would send it right back to him. And then I would forget everything. I have like a goldfish memory. Like if it's not in my hands, I forget it. Right. So those books were written very differently and that I would just read what he'd wrote, read what he'd written, look at what I was supposed to do next, and then just try really hard to make him laugh. I, um, I love the fact that, so for the people that are listening that don't necessarily know uh, the, the tales of Pell series, um, are kind of like let's make fun of all of the 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 tropes that exist in you know fantasy lovingly uh, we lovingly, lovingly make fun of them as people who love them and study them right and and so it's like you get it and it's i love the very first one you know in kill the farm boy where it's like this is the chosen one he is supposed to do that and he's dead <laughs> wait yep. what he's wait what wait he, he's dead but so who's gonna save the world then well I guess they're going to have to pick up the slack. <laughs> All those losers who are left over. Right. And it's Which just is Kevin's it's... original idea. I get because you've talked to him. So you already know how Tales of Hell came to be. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, and so it was just really funny that you guys would come together. I just and I love the camaraderie that the two of you have building these stories. And um, do you have more tropes? Do you have a list of tropes that you're like, we still need to research we still want to make fun of this or kind of poke fun at this or, you know, make a joke about, you know, X, Y, Z. There's three books. There's three books now, right? Am I right? Yeah. It's um, a Kill the Farm Boy, No Country for Old Gnomes, and The Princess Beard. Right. Um, is there, A, a fourth book that's being worked on? And do you have a list of things that's like, we still need to make fun of these things? Oh, we're not that organized. No. We, each of these books, when we were like, it's time to prepare the next book, we went to, uh, like, Frenchman Street and... New Orleans and just got a drink in every place and scribbled on napkins what we thought would be funny. Mm -hmm. uh, we are we are not um, an, an organized note keeping people, or at least I'm not. Uh, so it's all very on the fly and of the moment, like every book was kind of influenced by where we were, what we were doing at the moment. So if a fourth book was required, the next place that we were in together, we would have interesting drinks and whatever we came up with would be influenced by whatever was happening around us at the time, which is why No Country for Old Gnomes uh, is one kind of book, and then the Princess Beard is another kind of book. Because Princess Beard, we story broke in Seattle uh, at a tiki bar, and so it is kind of like a uniquely kind of piratey, watery book. And I love people that listen; they know I love my pirates. Um, so I'm going to ask you: when you're when you're putting together these tropes, have you considered that maybe? in the world of role-playing, there are a million tropes you guys might not know about that you could go with. I mean, we're, we're nerds. We, we game in our own ways. So mm -hmm. we, we know 
we know some of them, but um, but we, I mean, we 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 have. The, I made up a Pell game, so like we we are in that sphere uh, tangentially, at least for fun. I've I've rolled I've run the Pell RPG twice for okay. World Builders at Emerald City Comic Con. Okay. Um, at their kind of big party where you know you you uh, contribute to charity and you get to come in and play games. And if you're at my table, you usually get free cake because my friend Adam Mercunius always brings us a nice gluten free cake. Nice. But yeah, this is um, this is my spellbinder that contains the Pell RPG that I have written. <laughs> um, but it's it's different than other RPG games because instead of like heavily heavily dice rolling and math, um, it's all about well the the gods of Pell Pellinus is the the Pell god. It's a two headed god like Janus, which is me and Kevin. Right. And they just want to be entertained. They don't really care if you're good or bad. They want to be entertained. So it's like you know. It's not necessarily that you roll the dice, it's that you close your eyes and you stab this with your pencil. And then the gods interpret whatever you land on. Um, oh no's or the skull usually doesn't go well. Uh, so it's that kind of game. Um, so for those that are that. listening, it's literally a sheet with little drawn pictures on it. So you have to stab yeah, your pencil down. So there's like a horseshoe and an arrow and a rainbow and some words. Uh, so there's it, nope, nope, nope. Yeppers, a potato, a cup of coffee, a goat. Oh, that's all. And that is right in that, that, that feels, I feel that with that series. And then like we had a handstand contest once, um, a wrap off. Sometimes like the gods of Pelinus will give you a word and you have to make as many words as you can out of the letters in it. Um, there's the head rub tummy pat challenge, <laughs> bottle flip challenge. Uh, yeah, it's, it's entertaining beatboxing challenge. So yeah, if you are a person who does not necessarily want to roll dice to see what happens. Oh, and if you go to the bathroom during the game, you have to put this on your on your chair. Gone to plop shack. Gone to the plop shack. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's what you're dealing with. Oh my gosh. That is yeah. freaking hilarious. It was super fun. You uh you've also done, we're gonna change 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 gears here because that's <laughs> that's hilarious. And I'm like, I can't. I could sit here and talk role playing all day long. <laughs> but another thing I can talk all day long is comic books, and you've done quite a few. Yes. Where where do the lines connect between your books, you writing novels, and then you becoming a writer for comic books? So this is fun because it's connected by gaming, actually. Yes. Um, <laughs> we got one. Yes. So I really wanted to write comics, okay. and. If, I don't know if you know this, comics are really hard to break into. They, you know, I can tell you how to get published. I can tell you how to get traditionally published. Maybe you have skills good enough to do that and tenacity enough to do it, maybe not. But I can give you a very definitive road to get there. I can't tell you how to get how to get published in comics. Um, everyone's road there is different. And it's, it's like a fiery slug. They burn the trail behind them. You can't follow it. Right. So um, I was very happy to be included in some... Uh, Boo anthologies from Monkey Brain Press, which is very kind. Um, I got to write uh, a story about a haunted carousel. Um, I got to write a funny X-Files skit, kind of stuff like that. But it was all kind of just free, fun, Halloween-y stuff. And then we got to um, Gen Con 2015, where I was on the writer's track. And uh, they came to me and they were like, you write comics, right? And I was like, I've written like two free comics of six pages each, but technically, yes, I've written comics. And they were like, we have a big problem. We have a panel called Writing Comics for Women and it's all white dudes. Oh no. And they were like, could you please be on it? And I was like, I don't know anything about this, but sure. Um, it was, it was, it was, such a hot mess that the Mary Sue did like a two-page expose on it. If you Google my name and uh, Mary Sue and genre con and comics, it will pop up and you can have a fun time reading the hijinks of that panel. Wow, that's then that sounds I, I can only I can only imagine. It's juicy. Let's just say that me and Jim Zub and Chris Roberson uh, and Alina Pete and Gene Haw are all are, are all now friends forever for what we endured on that panel. <laughs> But we got to a point where we were talking about breaking into panels and breaking into comics. I was like, I don't know how, y'all. I'm trying so hard. Like, right. I have written these books. I My editors love me. I know people in comics. I can't get anybody to give me a chance. So I can't tell you as a woman or as anyone how to break into comics because I can't figure it out. Right. 
And then that day I got an email from an editor at Boom that said, I saw in the Mary Sue that you wanted to write comics. Got any pitches? Nice. Yeah. Oh, no, it was so awesome. I was at like a donut taco truck at the time I got that back when I could eat gluten. And I was like, this is the best moment of my life. I'm eating a donut Sunday. And I got an email from an editor. Oh, it was beautiful. So yeah, um, it was amazing. That was Chris Rose at Boom. And I had a pitch for him within a couple of days uh, called Lady Castle that was mm -hmm. based on that line from Monty Python, uh, strange women, lying in ponds, giving away swords is no basis for a system of government. And I was like, what if it was? Yeah. <laughs> so that comic became Lady Castle, which I think you had the uh, the cover for so kindly in your, your Twitter post. Yeah, in the Twitter um, post and the scrolling scrolling image, which I got to tell you, that art is just gorgeous, by the way. It looks, it looks very Disney-esque, mm -hmm. but it's Disney-esque with a little bit of an edge to it. It is. It is. Oh, I, I, I would. We we briefly sold rights to Fox, and they got bought by Disney, so it never got to be made. But for a oh. minute, I had I had the thought. But yeah, so I got to write Lady Castle okay. for Boom, and then I got other really cool offers within Boom. I got to write some Adventure Time, a Labyrinth story. I got to write Sparrowhawk for them, and then I got an email from IDW from a great editor named Denton Tipton, who was in charge of Star Wars Adventures at the time. I was the only person who had read the Last Jedi script because I had to read it to write Phasma. And he was like, hey, as one of the only female comic writers on the entire world who knows who Rose Tico is, could you write us a comic? And I was like, yes, I could. Thank you. Nice. Um, so that was my aim with IDW was that I was the only female comic writer who had ever read the script and no one else was allowed to read it. So I got to write those comics, which led to more Star Wars adventures. So I got to write Rose and Paige Tico. I got to write um, Alea and Amelyn Haldo story. I got to write a Padme and Jar Jar story. I got to write uh, a David Attenborough-esque take on Porgs. Um, and then that led me to Marvel Action Spider-Man and all the work that I've gotten to do for IDW. So it was one of those really, uh, you know, making making lemonade out of lemons so right, far. Right. When, when you're looking at the comparison between these, when you're sitting there and you write, say, a Star Wars novel, and then you're writing a comic book. Um, what for you, and we've had a couple comic book writers on here before, like what is the process and what is the big difference for you uh, when you're doing one versus the other? I mean, the hardest thing was really learning how to write a tight comic script. Um, typically, you don't want more than 90 words of dialogue on a page, if that, which most novelists writing their first comic have way too many words and way too many panels. So my first script I turned in for Lady Castle, they were like, this is great. You're a great writer. We need like one fourth as much words. <laughs> it was it was a huge challenge. Um, I was actually staying at a hotel at the time, visiting my parents, and there was a Santa con at that hotel. And I remember sitting in this hotel uh, breakfast bar surrounded by a thousand Santas, like nearly in tears because like, I don't know how to write a comic and they hate my comic and they're going to cancel this. <laughs> It was terrifying. Uh, they were kind enough to keep going with me through it. But what I learned over time um, was that the key is that, you know, in a novel, they tell me about 80,000 words. And that means I can write anywhere from 70 to like 150 and get away with it. Mm -hmm. In comics, 20 pages is 20 pages, not a second less. Right. So I had to learn to really, um, you know, break it down from the start, make sure that I had my beats so that, you know, when you turn the page, you would see exciting things so you, know, you always save the exciting things for the end of an even page that sort of thing um so it was like a lot of experience but it was also uh generally the kindness and generosity of my editors in that time and helping me to really understand how to write a comic yeah um, very grateful for their their patience and their trust um and then you know over time different editors like different uh different comics companies, different editors want a slightly different format. Like I can tell you the manuscript format for a novel. There is literally only one in comics. If you go look at the comics archive, everyone yep. has a different comic script style format. Well, that's There's what I was going to ask you next. On. I was going to ask you next. Like, did you have to deal where you wrote down what the artists were going to say, or did you like have the story and they sent you the pictures and you had to plug in the words? I was probably, um, in my first comic, I didn't know yet how to trust in the artist, so I was probably a little bit more um, descriptive than actually I needed to be. Then again, when you're, your first episode of a comic is going to be the longest because you're setting the terms and describing the things for the first time. Maybe not in, you know, Spider-Man where it's understood, you know, oh, you're in Brooklyn, you're in the Bronx, whatever. Right. Um, but for Lady Castle, designing a whole new world, there were going to be a lot more descriptions. Right. 
but and I think in that first that very first draft, I was like, you know, there are exactly seven, uh, you know, there are seven. There's this one is a rectangle, and at the top is a bird, and at the bottom is a fence. And like <laughs> it was a bit much. And I kind of learned that, you know, things will go a lot better if you give vague directions and let the artist plan things out. Yeah. Um, it was especially pleasant when I got to know the artist and really trust them, like working with Fico Osio with a Marvel action Spider-Man, he's just a genius. And I realized the less I tell him, the cooler it's going to be. But if I ask for something like very specific, he is going to nail it. Nice. Excellent. When you're, when you're going through, did you get to do any, like, here's a character that I wrote in a novel or a character you created, and then you got to do it in the comic or vice versa? Um, I don't think I've actually gone from like my books to comics, uh, but, you know, I've gotten to do three creator-owned comics. So Lady Castle, Sparrowhawk, and Starpig are, you know, all comics that kind of came out of my brain and are considered creator-owned. And those were just amazing. Um, I would say, you know, especially Sparrowhawk, uh, seeing what happened with what I described and then how the artist presented it, it was so dynamic and cool. Um, that was another one where, like, once you have that trust and you just kind of let them go... You, know, you can also say, you know, make this however many panels you want on a page. Like at the beginning, she's, you know, on the ground about to die. And at the end, she's holding her sword over the monster and just letting them get there. Mm -hmm. um, but the first time I saw character designs, it was just like, oh, my God, it's real. <laughs> um, because, you know, as an artist, I mean, I I was an artist. I went to right. I worked at a visual arts center and, you know, for years I have my art degree. But I was, I never found my body of work. I never had the thing that's like, oh, this is me as an artist. I just tried everything. I played everything. So, you know, drawing comics is really, really hard. Creating characters that you can depict in the round and change their faces is really hard. So seeing, you know, the ladies of Lady Castle for the first time was just mind blowing. You made a post, you know, because we're talking comic books. We're talking Star Wars. And, you know, you did Minecraft, Hellboy, yep. Spider-Man. You did the Blood series. <laughs> you did all these different things pretty much every genre. And I was like, you know, that's kind of funny. And I was thinking to myself, she's got so many different genres. And literally right after I was, I was like writing down notes and stuff. You literally just tweeted about, yep, here's another genre that I, that I'm working on. <laughs> what is it? How, how is it? Cause obviously a lot of people like Stephen King's got his horror books and you know, everybody's kind of got their, this is their niche and this is what they write about, but you're, I'm going to write about everything. How is that for, for you? And how is that for, you know, your, your publishers and editors and, you know, all of the people you work with where they're like, oh, this is okay. We talked early. You, you've had you've written a children's one. And then you came up with this completely other thing. How is that for you? And how is that for the people you work with? Well, you know, I remember um, very early on when the blood series was happening and my next book I wrote was servants of the storm, which is a, a YA horror book. I remember my editor from the blood series uh, who was she'd inherited me. My first editor who bought my first series is Jen Heddle, who moved over to Lucasfilm. So I was turned over to another wonderful editor named editor named Abby. And I remember her sending me an email that was like, you know, we need to talk about your brand. Like, what do you think is your brand moving forward? And I remember being feeling like very like, oh, she's gonna hate this because she probably wants me to write another, you know, vampire romance book. And I was already working on all of these YA horror and then YA thriller was my one after that. And I remember talking to my agent about it and I was just like, I can't do that. I'm not, I, I don't feel that I'm a person that's just going to write one genre. I haven't done it so far. And I have all of these books. I was already thinking about Wake of Vultures at that time, which is a, you know, monster hunter Western. And so um, if you look at my website, it's DelilahSDawson.com. It's also whimsydark.com because everything I write is on the scale from whimsical to dark. They can either be super whimsical or super dark or in the middle, but it's all, it all reads like a Delilah S. Dawson book, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of what I've leaned into is that whimsical and dark is kind of my jam. Um, I don't think I could write, you know, a, a, a sweet adult, funny contemporary romance um, without darkness or, or, you know, some kind of supernatural aspect. Yeah. So I think it's probably been, you know, a challenge for the people who have to wrangle me. Um, but at the same time, I can be kind of a powerhouse in that, that I can accept a lot of different things and do a lot of different work and, uh, Go in a lot of different directions, which you know there aren't. There are lots of people who can, um, but you know it's like my friend Chuck Wendig does something kind of similar. Um, 
but I guess we're kind of a, a rarer breed in that I can I can do almost anything. Um, you have. But it's I have and you I have. do. But I, I said that from the start, you know, I think even in my queries to my my first editor and my now editor, it was just or not editor, agent. My first now agent was just like, I write in a lot of genres and a lot of age groups, and I'm up for almost anything. So, you know, it's it's kind of a superpower if you channel it right. Yeah. Well, uh, and that tweet came about because you're promoting your new book, yeah. The Violence. Um, you want to give us a quick rundown of kind of what The Violence yeah. is? Yeah. So if, if you can see it, this is The Violence. It's one of my all-time favorite covers. Yeah. It's it's a it, great, very, it, it tells you what's go going on. So for those that are listening, yeah. it's a red book, says The Violence on it. <laughs> big, big kitchen knife in the background. And the shadow doesn't necessarily match the knife. Is that intentional? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's. You know, it's it's got a thriller vibe, but it, yeah. it's kind of a hard. It's again, it kind of defies genre. We're seeing it mainly talked about as a kind of domestic thriller slash horror. Mm -hmm. um, but the violence is about a world in which there is a new kind of pandemic in which people break out in random acts of animalistic violence. So it opens with a lady shopping in like a Costco, looking at a mayonnaise jar. She drops the mayonnaise jar, picks up a bottle of Thousand Island dressing, and beats the nearest shopper to death with it then drops the bottle and selects her mayonnaise and just keeps going. So that's how this pandemic works as you randomly just kill someone and then move on with your life. Um, which of course throws America into chaos because at first, you know, you're like, well, how do we know who has the violence and who doesn't? People are dying, how do we help them? By the time we get to a 911 call, someone's already dead. And the person who did the violence is confused and has no idea it happened. Um, and then of course that gives a very good way for a woman who's caught in um, a, you know, domestic abuse situation to get away from her abusive husband is by saying that he has this violence and having him taken away um, is the only way she can think of to get out of a situation where we hear about it a lot. I grew up with it where, you know, woman bit by bit is kind of cut down, cut away from her resources and her friends, gaslit until she's just kind of trapped with no resources, no way out. And kind of every day is just walking on eggshells. Yeah. And for those that are listening, uh, it, it is a serious topic. And I do want to mention if anybody at home is dealing with domestic violence or whatnot, you can reach out to the domestic violence hotline. Uh, you can go to their website, thehotline.org. It is untrackable. So it does not show up in your media uh, history. Uh, you can also text the word START to 88788 if you have an issue. Uh, to get some help as well. Also, you can call 1-800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E. So if anybody is having issues, um, reach out and, and get the help you need to, to get into a safe, safer environment. So, and thank you for our mods in the live stream for posting the link to that. It's very much appreciated. Your book comes out February 1st, right? Is yeah. that the right date? Um, and That's people right. can pre-order it now pretty much anywhere. They're on Amazon. Uh, are you going to have an audiobook version? Yep. An audiobook version is out there, an ebook version. So pretty much any way you like your book, you can get it. Um, it should be at the Barnes and Nobles all around. Uh, your local ND bookstore would be happy to give you a copy. If you're a library person, you can request it from your library and they'll usually carry it for free. So yeah, it's going to be everywhere. Awesome. Who's doing the narration? Do you know? Oh my gosh. That's... My mind is a sieve these days. Let me look that up real quick. I remember listening to the voices and being like, that's the one. Get her. Because I had a, I had thought that we would have, you know, three different narrators because there are three different points of view. It's okay. Chelsea, kind of the main character, and then her daughter, Ella, who's 17, and her mom, Trisha. Um, Hillary Huber is the narrator. Okay. Amazing. Um, but, and I know I did say that I don't normally read the our live stream chats before the Q&A, but I do have one that did just pop up and I do want to read it. And it does go back to talking about comic books and multiple writing. And I'm reading this because I think it is pertinent and something that I want to share to our podcast listeners as well. So they get a little preview of the Q&A that comes a little later for the live stream audience only. And this post says, it's mostly a thanks, but as a former comic book store worker, I really appreciate being able to recommend books written by or featuring female or non-binary folks, especially for the kids. So being able to point them to Star Wars was really awesome. Yay, thank you. So there you go, that. Uh, 
how hard was it to switch to this? Was this something that had been this, the, the book, the violence, has this been something that's been stewing in your mind for a while? And you're like, I really want to get this out. Um, does it tie? To, is there like another book you might've done in the past that kind of like lent you, led you this way? Uh, I mean, like I said, most of my books are on the scale from whimsical to dark. My mm -hmm. books are pretty violent, um, especially like Hit, which was my YA about if uh, someone bought all of the debt in America and turned the children of debtors into bounty hunters to kind of cut off the dead weight with people who weren't going to pay their debts back. A uh, very violent book. It, the cover looks like a credit card splashed with blood. Phasma, a very violent book. We think of it as Mad Max Fury Road in the Star Wars world. Um, Wake of Vultures, which as you mentioned is under my pseudonym, Lila Bowen. It's kind of a Wild West monster hunt, very violent. So like I write, I can write violent books. I mean, you know, my Minecraft book, not so much, but most of my books are pretty violent. So this one kind of fell in that same realm. It's probably my most serious book to date. Um, it is based on the violence that I grew up with in my home. Uh, mm -hmm. My dad used to choke us unconscious to kind of keep us in line because you can't there's no bruises uh, like there are with hits. You can't prove it to anyone. Yeah. So it's the kind of thing I've been wanting to kind of work through in a book for a long time. I work through some of my issues in books. Um, you know, I can go through any of my books and tell you what issue I was working on at the time, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, but I've been wanting to work through this. And I tried it, actually, when I was much younger in a book that was like a serial killer ghost book. And I remember my agent, uh, my then agent, who was a great agent, and she did amazing things for my, my career. But she said, this abuse doesn't read as realistic and i was like oh it's realistic yeah yeah <laughs> like well but i don't believe it you didn't make me believe it and i remember being like the message i got was like the way that you lived life is not believable and it was like very destructive to my psyche so i put it away for a while um and then i i had this idea i had it at emerald comic-con 2019 i believe where it was like well what do people that are in that situation need they need to feel empowered that there is a way to escape and fight back. Because in general, if a woman fights back against a man, either he straight up just kills her or she ends up you know, in jail or on the stand for like, why did you shoot this man? Well, he'd been you know, abusing me for, for years. Well, you can't prove that. We just know you shot him. So I was like, oh, well, if there was this pandemic, because this is before COVID happened. So yep. pandemics weren't a thing back then, but it was like, if there was this pandemic of random acts of violence that kind of struck like malaria when you didn't know it would happen, you couldn't really put anybody in jail for it because they were like, oh, well, you you didn't know what you were doing. You were unconscious. So it wasn't your fault. So it was like, oh, what a cool way to get someone out of that domestic violence situation. Uh, so that's where the book came from. But I didn't want it to just be kind of like a an issues book. Yeah. So it goes yeah. into like a road trip that involves pro wrestling. And, you yes. know, the daughter ends up with, you know, a, a gorilla vaccination uh rv that has stolen you know the formula from the the pharma bros for the vaccine and you know the grandmother who is a narcissist has to learn how to be a human being again because she's stuck with her tiny grandchild who is a feral monster now so uh it definitely may have started in kind of like a very serious issues place but then it got typically whimsically and, and dark like me okay excellent um has your process in writing since we're talking about your newest book has your process in writing, and I, and we kind of touched on this kind of throughout the show, did your process change from, you know, your first handful of books to now? Like, obviously, you mentioned that it's a little bit quicker, your playlist is shorter, um, but has, has your process changed a lot? Have you added new tips or tricks to your to your to your book of book writing that, that you didn't have yeah. at the beginning that you wish you did? I mean, experience and, and time on task, you know, is, is the greatest thing you're going to learn. Like your process is going to change all the time. And the more books you write, the more you can kind of skip to the front of the line of your own process. So yeah, my first few books had, you know, like 26 drafts, and then I would send it to my beta readers. And then I would, you know, revise for that. And then my agent, I would revise two or three times for them. So, you know, I, I used to have probably 13 drafts before I sent something to an editor. And now I send them the second or third draft just because I trust myself more because, you know, having three books under your belt versus having 23 belts, books under your belt is, is a big difference. So yeah, it's, it's a lot faster now. Um, I also, I didn't use to outline. I could never write until I knew the goalpost moments of where it begins, the instigating factor that changes everything, the main conflict, the climax and the ending. So I never wrote a book until I knew those things because to me, that's like saying, I'm going to go on vacation, just getting on the road and driving. Um, you don't know where you're going to end up. Like you can end up somewhere terrible. If I want to go to the Grand Canyon, 
I want to have the room to stop at cool places on the way, but I, I want to end at the Grand Canyon. I don't want to, you know, end up in Poughkeepsie. Big difference. Um, these days, because of Star Wars and other IP, I've learned how to um, outline better. And I've also used this wonderful book called Story Genius by Lisa Crone that talks about the third rail of your book, uh, okay. kind of like the heartstring that pulls the character through. And it's really helped me uh, give books a better chance of getting to the finish line. Um, I've had books punk out at 20 pages, 100 pages, usually because I didn't fully connect with the character's motivation through to the end. And now that I have story genius and outlining under my belt, I can pretty much ensure I'm going to cross the finish line. Even if I leave some places to you know, meander along the way, I kind of always have that my arrow is always pointed in the right direction. Nice. All right. So another question you, we mentioned at the beginning, New York times bestselling author that day that you find out you've made the list. Walk us through that moment. If you can, <laughs> if you can. It's so disappointing. I was so burned out. I was so burned out. We were living in Tampa at the time okay. and I had been just working so hard and I had just moved and I was with my uh, family in this new house and they were, my children were in new schools and it was so stressful. And my agent called me and she went number 10 and I went, 10 what? <laughs> and she went on the list. And I went, what list? And she was like, number 10, you on this list. And I was like, oh, that's nice. Because the hardest part about being an author is that like the really exciting moment is when you sell the book and get to announce that by the time the book comes out, you've been working on it for like a year and a half, two years, three years, you've done all of this work and uh, launch day can be kind of so confusing and strange and you don't know what's going on. So like at the time that this happened, I was like kind of burnt out and uh, I was, I was completely out of it. So it did not have that, that kind of we're going to the Disney World feeling when you win the Super Bowl. It was more like, what's Disney World? Um, so it was super anticlimactic and very strange. And it made me very aware of the difference between, you know, striving for something and actually getting it. Mm -hmm. How sometimes, you know, you get the joy in the fight and the montage versus the moment that you win, which is often anticlimactic and strange. Because you're like, well, how should I be feeling? Like, am yeah, I supposed yeah. to have champagne now? I don't have champagne. Like, am I... I'm just like making meatloaf for my family and I'm up to my elbows and like raw meat and spinach. What should I do now? So right. it was like disappointingly anticlimactic, but like a very good life lesson in that if you want to be a writer, you have to find your joy in the actual process of writing. Like that's, that has to be the well that you go back to. Um, if you only live for those high moments, those moments of winning this or getting that, you are going to be kind of chasing a high that you can't control. Yeah. Um, so it made me well aware, like, okay, maybe I didn't enjoy that moment. Like, you know, I thought I would, like my dreams told me I would, but once I kind of worked through my burnout and had my next idea and started writing, that's where the excitement was, was like, oh my God, I have an idea again. I'm so full of ideas. I'm so excited to write this. Like writing is my oasis. It's where I go to have fun and be myself. So it was anticlimactic and slightly disappointing and a really good lesson in where to put my energy. Okay. That's a great, that's a great story. I, I was kind of curious because I have this thing where like, I'll go see a movie or I'll sit down and watch a movie and we'll sit there and I can't, I have, I have to have 24 hours to process what I just saw, at least for the really good movies. You know, the ones yeah. that I really get into, I need 24 hours to like process what I saw and the little details and I'll get little spigots along the way and I'll be thinking about them. And then afterwards, I'm like, then I decide whether I like the movie or not. And sometimes it can take a couple days. You know, I'll be like, yeah, it was a really great movie. But then three days later, I was like, you know, I don't think it was really a great movie. I thought that at the time, but now that it's all sunk in, yeah. not so much. And so I was wondering if that was also kind of the, the same thing where it's like, maybe not right away, but eventually, you know, it's like, yes, we got there. <laughs> well, you know, I had another interesting moment. I won... Um... There used to be a very big award in the writing world card, the RT award. It was done by, it used to be called Romantic Times Magazine. It became RT, but it was, it was like our kind of Oscars for a while there. And um, I, I won this RT award for Wake of Vultures and I flew to Las Vegas and I got to like accept my award on the Jumbotron. And it was this big, beautiful moment. Like my dad was dying of cancer at the time. And this was like kind of the last really nice thing I got to do before we settled into hospice. And I was up there in my dress giving a speech and then afterwards, I was in my, like, 
I didn't know where everyone was and I didn't have any really close friends who were there. And I was in my hotel room and I could figure out what to do. And I ended up just going down to Guy Fieri's restaurant. And I was so like sad looking that they gave me an extra thing of guacamole because I looked like a person who needed two things of guacamole instead of one. And I was in my hotel room in my pajamas with two things of guacamole and this huge thing of chips. And I was just like, I just won a major award. <laughs> so sad. I'm so sad. And I had like 9,000 calories of guacamole in my room in Las Vegas by myself. And I was just like, I think I just like writing better than winning awards. Yeah. Was it at least good guacamole? Oh, it was amazing. Like, I, I won't say a bad word about Guy Fieri because like in my time of need, they they took care of me. There you go. There you go. Um, do you have any appearances coming up? Any other other podcasts, other shows, conventions, things like that you got coming up you want to talk about? You want to plug? Yeah, I do. My calendar is, I live my whole life off of like a written hardcore calendar. <laughs> downstairs so i can tell you i have um on february 2nd wednesday my first uh live book launch in two or three years it's going to be at eagle eye books in decatur georgia with okay. brian panowich uh, who wrote card cash valley nice dude i met him at the delonigo book literary delonigo book festival not literary but book um who's a nice guy so it'll be fun uh, so that's 7 p.m. And Eagle Eye Books can also do like signed personalized copies of the violence. Um, so if you want one of those or even maybe if you can get my Star Wars books, but I'll sign anything any way you want. I will draw pictures on it however you like. But they also ship. Uh, then on February 4th, um, I have another virtual event. Um, if you look at my Instagram or my Twitter, you can see or even my website, Delilah S. Dawson events. You can see like the links of those for registration and how to get signed books that can help you. Um, then on February 23rd, I get to talk with Rob Hart, um, who's the author of Paradox Hotel is his book that's coming out. Um, and again, that's it's on my website and everywhere else. So, yeah, I'm so excited to like actually be at a live book launch again Yay. Um, and see people. <laughs> it's been so long. I think Kevin and I did the Princess Beard Tour uh, at the end of 2019, back when I had a cold and was like, it's okay. I'll just, you know, not breathe on you back when you could right. like travel with That's a cold. That's not going to be the same these days. Nothing. No. So yeah, looking forward to it. It's all on my, on my webpage, DelilahSDawson.com events. You'll find it there. Excellent. And on Twitter, you are DelilahSDawson. On Instagram, yeah. you are at DelilahSDawson. Uh, the website, as we mentioned, whimsydark.com. Or Delilah S. Dawson. Or Delilah S. Dawson. They both. They I want both. to be so easy to find. Yeah, there you go. I, I wish it was so easy. Like the, the Epic Realms name, there's a couple other things that have it. So it's like, here I can have it as this, but over here I have to have it as this. It's like, oh gosh. So I, whenever I see someone, I get a little bit jealous when I go, oh, it's the same everywhere. <laughs> well, that's why I had to add the S in. There was already a writer named Delilah Dawson who oh. was writing. Um, she writes romance. She's super nice. We used to get each other's mail, but I added in my S to kind of differentiate us. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Ladies and gentlemen, February 7th, we were talking about the Tales of Pell. Um, we're going to have audiobook hall of famer, audiobook narrator, winner of a plethora of awards, Luke Daniels. Uh, he's narrated over 450 audiobooks, including, as I said, the books from the Tales of Pell. He also wrote uh, not wrote. He also narrated the Wizards 2.0 series. Um, and I'm saying that specifically because February 21st, the author, comic book writer, comedian Scott Mayer is also going to be joining us on the 21st. Uh, he writes the Wizard 2.0 series, uh, starting off with the first book, Off to Be the Wizard. He also wrote The Authorities, Run Programmed, and Grand Theft Astro. So that'll be February 21st. March 7th, game designer Nikki Valens. They worked on Star Wars Empire vs. Rebellion board game, uh, Arkham Horror, Mansions of Madness, Eldritch Horror, and many, many more. So tune in March 7th for that. Uh, make sure you follow and subscribe us, rate and review, and all of that fun stuff. It helps get eyes on us, and getting eyes on us gets eyes on our guests, and that's what's most important. So for Delilah S. Dawson, I'm Nick, and I want to thank you for listening to Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. <laughs> <laughs>